We're proud to support Living on Earth and hope you will too. You can contribute at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama is talking big about climate dangers and has already hired former Senate Relations Committee Chair John Kerry to spark international efforts. The Secretary of State is going to play a key role in upcoming negotiations to try to extend the Kyoto Protocol and to get the international community really committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And I think the signal it sends to have somebody who is such a strong senator on climate now leading the State Department is really, really important. And he's got an opportunity to signal to the rest of the world that the United States is serious about reducing its own emissions and to getting the global community to follow suit. The world may want to follow suit, but the U.S. Congress may have other ideas. Also, the thrills and spills of backyard skating and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 2013 could launch the era of climate action for the Obama administration if we're to take the rhetoric seriously. In January, as the president stood on the steps of the Capitol to be sworn in for a second term, he put the climate challenge front and center. And most recently, in his State of the Union address, the president laid out more details and connected the dangers of climate instability to recent extreme weather. It's true that no single event makes a trend. But the fact is, the 12 hottest years on record have all come in the last 15. Heat waves, droughts, wildfires, floods, all are now more frequent and more intense. We can choose to believe that Superstorm Sandy and, and the most severe drought in decades and the worst wildfires some states have ever seen were all just a freak coincidence. Or we can choose to believe in the overwhelming judgment of science and act before it's too late. We turn to two seasoned observers of science and climate policy for some perspective. Environmental law professor Ann Carlson is a co-director at the Emmett Center on Climate Change at UCLA. And first, here's Kevin Knobloch. He's president of the Union of Concerned Scientists. What he's doing in, in, in talking about the impacts is connecting to the millions of Americans who now are experiencing climate impacts and the costly destruction of, of climate impacts. You know, if you're a gardener or a hiker or a carpenter who works outdoors, you, you already are observing and connecting the dots between climate-influenced weather events and climate change. And so the president is simply tapping into that and reminding many other Americans that this thing is real. So the president says that this is happening. He says that people see that this is happening. Realistically, is there any chance of Congress getting together and saying that this is happening and that action uh, should happen now based on the science? I thought it was a brilliant stroke that the president called on Congress and cited Senator John McCain and Senator Joe Lieberman's earlier work in trying to move a comprehensive climate bill through the Congress. Uh, because it is the Congress's responsibility to respond to an urgent problem like this. He then said, if Congress won't act, I will. So, Professor Carlson, you're a lawyer that looks closely at environmental law, so tell us, what can the president do on his own if the Congress doesn't act? The most expansive power he has is under the Clean Air Act, and he's used that in two respects. One, to 
ratchet up fuel efficiency standards to really quite dramatic levels going forward. And the second thing he's doing is he's issuing regulations that are actually required under a court decision called Massachusetts versus EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from new and existing coal-fired power plants and other utilities. He's also got power to, for example, use his procurement power to have his agencies purchasing green vehicles, Um, to get the Defense Department, as it already has, focused on the development of renewable power. He's done a fair amount on federal lands in getting the siting of renewable facilities to produce renewable energy through more quickly. So he's not only already done a lot, but continues to have a fair amount of power. I noted that in his speech, he certainly suggested he would continue to push renewable energy uh, to keep up with China, among other things. Is there enough energy in the renewable energy program that the president has laid out so far, uh, Kevin Nabla? Yes. Here's the interesting thing about what's happening with renewable energy in this country. Not only is it growing rapidly, but it's driving manufacturing growth, American manufacturing growth. So in 2005, the percentage of wind towers, turbines, gearboxes installed in this country, made in this country, was 35%. Today it's 70%. So in through this deep recession, this is one of the few growing areas of American manufacturing. And that has everything to do with uh, state policies and federal policies and investments to drive renewable energy. So here's a place where Congress really has cooperated with the president, although on a short-term basis, is in passing and extending the production tax credit, which really is one of the reasons why renewable energy has continued to grow throughout the recession. One of the things that the president, I think, is trying to do in a State of the Union and speaking directly to Congress is to suggest that there may be areas where Congress can agree with the president on ways to stimulate new energy innovation, potentially to stimulate research and development, without actually tackling the larger question of an overall national climate policy. Now, elsewhere in the speech, he said he plans to cut red tape and speed up oil and gas permits. So do you see that as an olive branch, maybe to the fossil fuel industry or Heartland Democrats? I think Obama's energy policy all along has been to focus heavily on domestic energy sources, not always renewable ones. And I think some of that is political. I think some of it is economic reality. There's a huge boom in uh, the drilling of natural gas. And I think it's something that no president can ignore. Natural gas prices have fallen really dramatically. And trying to encourage that has a couple of consequences, one of which is positive in the short run for climate change, and that is that natural gas is displacing coal, which is a much more carbon-intensive fuel than natural gas. And so in the short term, that's really led to a reduction in emissions, and that's not a bad thing to encourage. In the long run, if we're really to accomplish the kinds of climate goals that scientists believe are necessary to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to have to move away from natural gas as well, or figure out how to do something with the emissions that natural gas and coal generate by sequestering them into the ground or something that doesn't release them into the atmosphere. Now, the low low price of natural gas also is creating some competition and stress for clean renewable energy, and, and we, we have to be mindful about that. The president's uh, plans, though, to speed up oil and gas uh, permits, uh, does it raise any red flags, uh, Kevin Knobloch? Uh, does it say anything about the approval of the Keystone XL pipeline, for example? The Keystone XL pipeline, which would transport dirty oil from the uh, so-called uh, tar sands uh, sites up in Canada through the, the vertical length of this country, 
uh, down to our export ports in, in Texas, really has become an emblem among people worried about climate change in great part because we don't have a comprehensive policy in this country, a, a declining cap on carbon and other heat-trapping emissions within which to consider these projects. So what's happening now, whether it's, it's this pipeline, proposed pipeline or uh, efforts to uh, open up uh, coal export ports in in, in state of Washington, uh, is, that, is that people across this country who are worried about climate change, the pace of change, and the role of fossil fuels in, in ex- driving and accelerating it, um, stepping up and opposing these projects. Our sense is that, that we, we need to get a comprehensive policy in place that rapidly drives down greenhouse gas emissions and gives us a fighting chance to hold off catastrophic changes. Until then, there's likely to be a pitched battle over every major pipeline or coal export that becomes a symbol of us turning a blind eye to what the burning of fossil fuels is doing to the ability of this planet to sustain life. Professor? So I think the Keystone Excel question raises a really important question that is mostly avoided in the State of the Union, but I think we're really going to need to focus on as well, and that is that the United States can't go it alone on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and as we do things like focus on domestic natural gas, uh, the rest of the world is still heavily dependent upon coal, and in fact, things like ports that Kevin mentioned to export coal simply mean that we could shift a lot of the emissions away from the domestic economy and um, to the global economy. And one of the problems of that is that overall our greenhouse gas emissions aren't reduced. So one of the really interesting and important questions will be the degree to which Secretary of State Kerry, for example, makes the uh, goal of reducing international global emissions central to his mission diplomatically. So the president proposed to use um, federal oil and gas revenues to fund what he calls an energy security trust, and he said that this would drive research and uh, shift our cars and trucks off of oil for good. Let's hear a bit of that tape. Tonight I propose we use some of our oil and gas revenues to fund an energy security trust that will drive new research and technology to shift our cars and trucks off oil for good. If a nonpartisan coalition of CEOs and retired generals and admirals can get behind this idea, then so can we. Let's take their advice and free our families and businesses from the painful spikes in gas prices we put up with for far too long. It's a powerful vision. It's, it's really the kind of presidential leadership that you look to a president for, to set a, a, an ambitious long-term vision that helps solve a range of problems. The, uh, the trust fund is, is an intriguing idea. It would create revenues for research on hydrogen fuel cell and battery electric vehicles, along with low-carbon biofuels uh, and so on. It's, it's a little bit of a mixed signal to uh, draw the revenues from oil and gas drilling on public lands, but uh, there may actually be uh, an exquisite partnership there. I think one of the things that might be a place where you can get bipartisan agreement is to fund research into technology and innovation. Uh, That seems to be less controversial than, for example, regulating carbon emissions or putting a price on carbon by imposing either a tax or a cap-and-trade scheme. So I think that this is a place where maybe he can get some bipartisan agreement. I don't know whether he'll get it out of those particular revenues. I would also add that I think the push to move our automobile fleet away from conventional 
gasoline and to electricity and to other fuels that do not emit carbon is an absolutely necessary move if we're to reduce our carbon emissions in the way that scientists think we need to over the course of the next 30 or 40 years. It's a long-term strategy, but it's a strategy we've got to begin now. The president, to do all this, needs a team. Most of his green team has left. The Secretary of Energy is moving on, Secretary of the Interior, the Administrator of the EPA, um, the leader of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, All these folks uh, have left the administration. Why do you think such a turnover um, in the green team for the president if he's making such a new commitment here? The turnover to me seems to be just the natural result of having served for four years, a very intensive four years, and not in any way a statement about whether the people who are leaving have a commitment to the president's agenda going forward. And I trust that he will find equally impressive replacements for all of those very talented and extremely qualified um, public servants. So it doesn't concern me that there's turnover. It just seems like the natural turnover at the end of a, a first term. Quick last comment on a new administration member, John Kerry, Secretary of State. The XL pipeline decision first goes through the Department of State. Uh, as a senator, uh, John Kerry sponsored uh, really strong legislation, didn't pass on climate. How do you think having Mr. Kerry at state is going to affect something like the pipeline decision? Kevin Nublock? There's been no stronger leader on climate action in the Congress than Senator Kerry. I think we should have every reason to expect he'll bring that leadership into his role as, as Secretary of State. The most important thing is that the, the environmental impact assessment that State Department is, is conducting on the uh, Keystone Pipeline take into account climate change and climate impacts. Uh, any serious environmental assessment of climate impacts of this pipeline will show that it would have a very significant harm. The only thing that I would add is that The Secretary of State is going to play a key role in upcoming negotiations to try to extend the Kyoto Protocol and to get the international community really committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And I think the signal it sends to have somebody who is such a strong senator on climate now leading the State Department is really, really important. And he's got an opportunity here to signal to the rest of the world that the United States is serious about reducing its own emissions and to getting the global community to follow suit. Kevin Knobloch is president of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Ann Carlson is professor of environmental law at UCLA. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write to Post Office Box 99007, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. And you can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download of the audio to listen when you want at LOE.org. Just ahead, news from up north, where ice is both a matter of survival and a recipe for fun. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
The polar bear has become an icon of the melting Arctic, the poster species that illustrates the rapid advance of climate change. And now a paper published in the journal Conservation Letters argues that drastic measures may be needed to save Ursus maritimus from extinction, including supplemental feeding. Andrew Duarche is a professor of biology at the University of Alberta, a longtime polar bear researcher and one of the paper's primary authors. We've got 19 different populations of polar bears in the circumpolar Arctic, and each one of them has a slightly different story to tell. Some of the populations are definitely undergoing stress with climate change as the sea ice melts away. Particularly those uh, bears that live in the Hudson Bay system in Canada, but also the bears off of Alaska in the southern Beaufort Sea population are showing clear signs of stress. Other populations are quite secure and will continue to be so for quite some number of years into the future. Now, talk to me a bit about the basic biology of a polar bear. Just why does it need this Arctic ice? Well, it's basically, it's the platform that they live on and they travel across it. So they undertake long distance migrations covering vast distances in a single year as they sort of move between different places to hunt their primary prey, which are ring seals and bearded seals. They're only found where the sea ice exists, and we only have polar bears where there are these two species of seals. So basically, the bears are adapted to dealing with a sea ice environment. You really have to think of them more as a marine mammal than a terrestrial mammal. Virtually all of their nutrition comes from the marine environment. Tell me how climate change affects polar bears so intensely. Well, it's a simple story, really. It's just a habitat loss issue. So as we warm up the climate, the Arctic is showing very rapid changes in sea ice. And basically, polar bears are just being pushed away from the places where they have lived in recent uh, tens of thousands of years. And we expect them to continue to lose their habitat in the south. They'll persist for some longer period of time at very high latitudes, but of course it'll be a much diminished number of bears than we have today. The very best studies were done by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and their estimates were that we'll lose two-thirds of the global population of polar bears by mid-century. Some indications are that that might have been overly optimistic. We may lose some of these populations much, much sooner than that. By the way, people still shoot polar bears in many places, yes? Yes, that's still pretty common in much of the Arctic. Uh, we still have a harvest in throughout North America and Greenland. Norway doesn't hunt bears and Russia has a very limited hunt. And that is a concern, but it's not really what's pushing the conservation issues for the management of polar bears or their conservation. Some of these populations have a sustainable harvest and there's no reason why local people can't continue to live in a subsistence manner and harvest polar bears. The problem is some of our populations won't have a sustainable harvest or don't have one right now. And that's where there's a lot of challenges um, coming for local people that have relied on these resources for thousands of years. Your paper outlines some potential strategies for saving the polar bear. Please discuss them with me now. We basically raise a bunch of options, which is from sort of at the minimalistic sense, you do nothing and you just watch them disappear. Uh, the other option is that you perhaps start to rehabilitate some of these starving bears, try to keep them alive and put them back into the population. So feed them up, then let them go. Feeding bears, how necessary do you think that might be? 
I think we're going to be doing it. I think there's such intense interest in polar bears that I think we will be feeding them. There's no doubt in my mind that some of these populations are going to probably be sustained with supplemental feeding. To put it in perspective, we feed other species um, to keep them alive as well. So if you go into the European context, they're equivalent of our grizzly bear, the brown bear. There are populations that are fed all the time to keep the, a viable population in an area and to keep them away from humans as well. We also do it with species like California condors to provide them with clean food. Uh, so it's not unheard of, and you can see the hand of humans in conservation of many species. Well, how do you feed a hungry polar bear? Uh, well, very carefully for starters, but uh, and certainly not close up. But what we argue is that probably because the prey of polar bears is also going to be highly endangered, uh, ring seals and bearded seals are not going to have a good time of disappearing sea ice. Um, so we're probably looking at alternate food sources. And we really suggest that we'll probably be dealing with sort of commercial polar bear chow, similar to what a polar bear would see in a zoo. Wait a second. You start feeding a polar bear chow. They get used to the handout from folks. I mean, you don't have a wild polar bear anymore. No, and that's really what we talk about in this. And in, in some places uh, down the road, we may be looking at sort of what we would call a semi-wild uh, bear park model, which is not inconceivable in some areas. What we would hope is that we wouldn't have to support the bears fully, that there would still be enough sea ice forming in some of these areas, that the bears would disappear and go hunt seals when they are available. But this would be sort of a, a means of keeping the population more viable. So if I understand what you're talking about here, the notion is that, hey, maybe we sh should be feeding these bears when the time comes so that there will be more time to deal with the impact of climate change? None of the options that we outline in this paper really do much good in the longer term if we don't deal with greenhouse gas emissions. The whole field of conservation biology hinges on the idea that you have the habitat of the species in place so that you can actually keep them alive in the wild. The big challenge for polar bears and, and what's different compared to a lot of terrestrial species is we're just losing sea ice at such a rate that it's hard to believe that we're going to turn this around in time to save most of the polar bear populations. What we're hoping is that we're going to hold on to some bears at very high latitudes uh, in the Canadian Arctic and probably in northern Greenland, and that that might be the sort of nucleus of an expansion of a population perhaps hundreds or thousands of years from now if the planet starts to cool down again and we start to see an expansion of sea ice into lower latitudes again. Now, there are some people out there who argue that uh, polar bears may, in fact, be able to adapt to changes in the climate and, and just change their diet to rely less heavily on seal blubber. How do you respond to that argument? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, we played out that scenario about 10,000 years ago in the Baltic Sea. We have very good evidence of fossil polar bears being all around Finland and Sweden and Denmark and Northern Ireland because the planet was a lot colder then. It was an ice age. The bears were very far south. We don't have polar bears in Ireland and we don't have them in Sweden nor Finland anymore. Basically, the bears blinked out when the sea ice disappeared. So we know what's going to happen. It's pretty clear that highly specialized species like these don't adapt to rapid climate change. So in the end, Andrew, what do you think we need to do to save the polar bear? There's a simple solution to saving the polar bear, and that's really that humanity has to deal with two issues. One is 
overpopulation and excessive use of fossil fuels. Until we can deal with those two issues, uh, the future for polar bears is definitely going to be challenging. But it's not just polar bears. It's going to be so many other species and ecosystems that are going to be pressed so hard by climate change. At the end of the day, the climate's warming. Polar bears are going to be one of the clear victims of it. Andrew Durocher is professor of biology at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been my pleasure. Every year when the temperature drops low enough, Canadians take to the ice. And when there isn't a pond in the neighborhood, they make their own. Backyard skating rinks are about as common in Canada as driveway basketball hoops in the United States. Bob Carty sent us this audio postcard from his neighborhood outside Ottawa. Ah. You okay? What happened there? Well, I plunged a snowbank headfirst when I was skating too fast. He just couldn't stop somehow, and he just slammed into the snowbank. Are you okay? Uh-huh. Don't try to skate backwards when you haven't even tried it yet or practice. Um, that's pretty much it. A bruise map is kind of like um, a map where it shows you where all your bruises are, those kind of things. When I was a kid, I remember the boys used to play hockey in my friend's backyard. And um, my brothers, I have three brothers, they would use me and other little sisters as goalposts. <laughs> I learned how to skate with the kitchen chair. It had metal legs, and my creepy older brother tried to get me to lick the steel, but no, I didn't do it. How to Make a Backyard Rink by Howard Purchase of Mount Pearl, Newfoundland. All you need is snow, water, patience, and a cold day. When planning a rink, make sure your hose can reach the area where you are putting the rink. To start, pack the snow solid with a shovel or a rented roller, or have some children run around on it for a while. They love it, and it gets the job done. There are two ways to make a backyard rink, with plastic and without plastic. The first year we started the rink and tried to do the whole thing the traditional methods. You'd be out here, you'd be stomping down the snow, you'd put slush and you'd try to, to have just banks of snow on the sides. I was lucky that year because we had good conditions. Last year was uh, a bad winter for making rinks. We didn't have any snow at the start. So what I was doing is out in the front yard and I was shoveling all the snow off of the driveway and wheelbarrowing it to the back. <laughs> that wasn't enough snow. So then I started shoveling the front street, and then I started shoveling the neighbor's driveways. But um, it wasn't going anywhere. And so I finally broke down and started to, in to introduce technology. Jiffy Rink. It's instant skating rink, uh, the size of approximately 10 feet by 20 feet. It's, it's a big bag, and you fill it up with water, and then after it freezes over, after 24 hours it freezes over, there's a top piece you pull off. You just pull it right off and there you go, there's your rink. This year I was planning to buy these bags again. Um, and then my wife was on the internet and, um, and found out that there are companies out there that will sell you plastic sheets as liners for your rinks. And uh, so we went and we ordered them on the internet. Why do I sweep? What you're trying to do is you have as flat a surface as possible when you put the flood down. 
any, any little bit of snow, any little chip of ice or something like that, it's going to spoil that. It's, I know it's sad. It's a pretty sad statement, but uh, it's about perfection. Making the perfect rink. I tell people I think my uh, deepest thoughts at six in the morning out there with a half-inch hose. And I suppose there is a certain satisfaction in in making flat ice. It's pathetic. <laughs> He'll go out there, he's got the hose, and he just drags it along slowly like a snake. And you know it was great? Because if we had to go pee, we didn't have to walk down from the park. We could just scoot in the back door, and then we'd scoot back out, and we'd be skating again. It would only take a couple of minutes. Our audio postcard of Backyard Skating Rinks was produced by Bob Carty. And now, some Canadian scientists are turning skaters like those into citizen scientists. They want to use homemade rinks to generate awareness and data about our warming climate. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald has the story. If you want to get Canadians to care about something, connect it to ice skating. You know, if you've ever seen a Canadian $5 bill, we actually have a picture of a bunch of kids skating on a pond. It's on our money because it's in our bones. That's Robert McClemon, Professor of Geographic and Environmental Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario. These days, he says, the backyard rink is under threat. With global warming, the, uh, the backyard skating experience may be an endangered species in coming years. Although he's worried about Canada's favorite winter pastime, Professor McClemon sees the slushy rinks as an opportunity to gather data on the changing climate and build awareness about global warming. And he's enlisting an army of citizen scientists right across North America. Professor McClemon and his colleagues recently launched rinkwatch.org, a website that allows people to pin the location of their backyard rink on an interactive map and upload information about daily skating conditions. We're simply asking people, could you skate on the rink Wednesday or Thursday this week because of the weather? And if it was cold enough, you just click yes or no. For good skating, the temperature needs to stay below about 25 degrees Fahrenheit. And we pool that data from right across North America, and then we can start to observe trends and patterns on what's going on there. He says the reaction to Rink Watch has been overwhelming, and not just in Canada. Our servers started to crash immediately in the first week. Right now, as we're speaking, we have over 1,000 registered users and over 750 skating rinks from the Yukon Territory in the Northwest right down to Massachusetts. I had to see for myself, so I headed over to the website. Let's see, rinkwatch.org. Oh, it says, Welcome to Rinkwatch, where backyard skating meets science. And we've got this big map. It's covered in tiny icons, little stick figure skating icons that represent the rinks. And man, they're, they're all over the place. It's not just Canada at all. There's one up here. We've got one in Norway and another in Greenland. And there's even one way up in northern Russia. And it looks like the map is color-coded. So the blue icons represent rinks with good ice, and the red icons represent rinks that are not skatable. And it looks like the rinks way up in northern Canada are doing okay. They're mostly blue. But there's a big cluster of red, little red stick figures right around the U.S. border, which makes sense given some of the erratic weather we've had. This has been a really tough winter. There's been a lot of freezing and thawing, which is really tough on backyard rinks. Climate scientists predict that the weather is only going to get more erratic in years to come. Professor McClemon and his colleagues hope to use RinkWatch to track changes in the length of the winter and variability in temperatures over the next few years. 
Along the way, they will involve thousands of everyday people in the scientific process. Environmental change seems to be speeding up and having greater impacts on our day-to-day well-being. So we need to get people involved in doing something about it. And this is one way I hope we can. One of the biggest challenges for climate scientists is making numbers matter. 392 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere doesn't mean much to most people. But perhaps projects like RinkWatch can help make those figures relevant by showing global warming's growing impact on our culture. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald. Coming up, reevaluating the naturalist that some call the creator of American science. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On Valentine's Day, the world woke up to allegations that South African Olympic athlete Oscar Pistorius had shot and killed his girlfriend, model Riva Steenkamp, in the heat of a domestic dispute. The incident highlighted what some, including eco-activist Laura Turner Seidel, see as a key to many problems. Not only is violence against women simply wrong, Ms. Seidel said in a recent speech, but the unfair treatment of women around the world also fuels troublesome conditions from poverty to overpopulation. Laura Turner Seidel joins me now on the line from Atlanta. How are you, Laura? Oh, I'm very well, Steve. How are you? Doing okay. Let me ask you about a talk that you recently gave at a woman's event where you made the connection between uh, the population problem and empowering uh, women. Yes, and um, there really is a big connection. Uh, Obviously, we are more than uh, 7 billion people on the spaceship Earth. And like you said, I've made the connection, and there are many others, including Dr. Lester Brown, that says if we promote and uplift the status of women and girls, that uh, naturally the population uh, fertility rates will come into check. And this really means that we need to give uh, women and girls, you know, access to reproductive health care and family planning and contraception. And, you know, we also have to make sure that the girls are staying in school and that way they put off early marriage and early childbearing, which is a real struggle when you're young and you're trying to um, to find your way in the world. And it's proven that when you do that, the population rates will come into check. We have a rising population in the United States, which is unusual for an industrial nation, and we have this huge pay gap between men and women in the United States. What relationship is there, do you think, between our population rise and the discrimination we still seem to see against women in the United States? Well, you know, I I really believe that um, there's a lot of things happening to make sure that women are paid equally to men. And I can just say, you know, For instance, you know, uh, Eve Ensler, who started V-Day, and there's this global campaign uh, called One Billion Rising. It's really to end violence against women and girls. And, you know, the statistics are staggering that one in 
three women will be brutally raped or beaten in her lifetime. And I think when you have those kinds of atrocities happening in this country and around the world, that it's easy to take advantage of women in other ways. And I know that women are not being paid equal and they're um, sexually objectified in this country, in the media and in film. And women just need to come together and rise up against, you know, all of these atrocities and, you know, unfairness in the workplace. And I think Eve Ensler, with her global campaign that has a series of events on Valentine's Day this year, will make women think about all of these issues at one time and to uh, strike, dance and rise up on behalf of their sisters. And uh, we're not going to leave enlightened men out, uh, by the way. You know, it's really um, all hands on deck here. But I do think if there's a consciousness about it and everybody's thinking about it, then we can start pushing, you know, our corporate CEOs to add more women to the boards, you know, and to pay them equally and to make our world a rape and violence free zone. Eco-activist Laura Turner Seidel, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Steve. Harvard University's Museum of Natural History was founded by the great 19th century naturalist Louis Agassiz. Passionate and popular at the time, today Agassiz has a mixed legacy. He was both an enthusiastic racist and a denier of Darwin's theory of evolution. Professor Christoph Ermscher of Indiana University at Bloomington is author of a new biography called Louis Agassiz, Creator of American Science. As we spoke during a visit to the museum Agassiz founded, he said the man was hard to classify. Louis Agassiz was a Swiss naturalist. He was a paleontologist, he was a zoologist, he was a marine biologist, uh, he was an embryologist. There was no limit to his interests. And he brought the comprehensiveness of his interests to the United States, trying to instill love of science in the masses. So let's get Louis Agassiz from uh, Switzerland to the United States by starting with his upbringing. How did his upbringing spur his passion for science? He was born in Montier, essentially a small village close to a lake. He was an avid sportsman, avid outdoorsman, avid collector. His father was a country parson who did not encourage um, his plans to become a scientist. And that's what he really wanted to be. And he uh, did not want to become a doctor. That was his father's career plan. He compromised by getting a degree in medicine, but getting a degree in natural history at the same time. And he studied with a great Cuvier, the greatest biologist of his time, as he saw it. And he acquired uh, the mentorship of Alexander von Humboldt, who was probably the second great man. So he had enormous, enormous nurturing. So coming to America in 1846, was the best career move that could have happened to him. What also happened is that his marriage fell apart, a marriage with his, uh, to his first wife, who was not equipped to put up with somebody whose main interest was science and hanging out with his buddies in the mountains and trekking on glaciers. She did something unprecedented. She took the kids, left him, moved out. At that point, the invitation came to come to Boston. Louis Agassiz was famous for his work about glaciation. 
this was big time for Agassiz in his glacier work. I mean, right. he's really among the very first to say that we had ice ages. He was the first to promote the notion of the Ice Age publicly. But there were people who had been working on it. There were scientists in Switzerland who had been talking about this for some time. There were even guides, mountain guides, who had discovered things that they would share with Agassiz. Agassiz was always very adept at taking an idea that other people had been thinking about and making it into his and promoting it as such. And he had, you know, as would happen in his career again and again, he had a falling out with somebody who basically said, I did this and you are taking my work. In this case, it was a fellow student that he'd met in Munich, a man called Schimper, who had been working on similar things and who unfortunately would scribble his notions, his ideas down on loose sheets of paper, but not take them to the public. Agassiz did. So how did Agassiz, the great naturalist, first become recognized for his scientific prowess? He first became uh, recognized essentially for um, his work on Brazilian fish. And he, when he was a student in Munich, he was promoted by one of his professors who was working on a volume about Brazilian fish. And Agassiz was um, the one who completed it. And um, that was essentially what put him on the map. He was very proud and he wrote to his sister at the time, would it not be a great thing if the best book in our father's library is a book written by me? And then he embarked on many multi-volume projects, one of which was about fossil fish. That was really what got Humboldt's attention and Humboldt kept encouraging him, work on the fish, complete your fish. We're in the Museum of Natural History here at Harvard yes, that yeah. Louis Agassiz founded. And we're in the room that has all these fossil fish. What of this collection do you think he knew something about directly? This is actually a fossil fish, a coelacan, um, fossil specimen that he collected. That was what his multi-volume work um, on fossil fish was about, looking at the past, trying to find traces of life in fossil specimens. Um, on his lecture circuit, one of the things that he perfected, that was one of his party tricks, he would ask audiences to give him a scale of any fish, and then he would, from that single scale, draw in chalk a fish on the blackboard with both hands because it was ambidextrous. And uh, so the fish would emerge and he would ask audiences to weigh in on what else was missing. The fins, okay, the head, and finally a living fossil fish, an oxymoron, would rise before his audiences. Louis Agassiz was very prominent in his time, obviously, but he was also one of the fiercest critics of Charles Darwin and Darwin's yes. theory of evolution. Why did Louis Agassiz so adamantly object to the notion of evolution? He believed that God's hand was visible in creation, that uh, everything that had been created was where it suppo was supposed to be, where it had been ordained to be by God. So there was a divine purpose in nature. He felt, and this is where things get perhaps a tad provocative, he also felt that the scientist was capable of deciphering God's plan to the extent that there really were no secrets in nature for Agassiz. Secrets are there just because you have not uncovered them yet. But it was not a hypothesis that made any sense to Darwin. He didn't need a divine principle to describe nature. He described nature as unfolding on its own terms without any human presence required. There's no human observer required. For Darwin, as he later said in The Descent of Man, uh, there's no more amazing instrument than the brain of the ant. 
That is not something that Agassiz would have accepted as a working premise. Human superiority was what underlies all of Agassiz's thinking, all of his work. It's very close to Emerson. Uh, in Nature, Emerson says at one point that the ant is interesting precisely for the ray of relation that goes from the ant to me. So what was the nature of the personal relationship between Charles Darwin and Louis Agassiz? It was a relationship that started with Darwin respecting Agassiz for his knowledge of data. Fieldwork was Agassiz's specialty, and Darwin always relied on observers in the field who would provide him with things that he needed. It started with Agassiz essentially encouraging him to work on barnacles, which Darwin did, and it was a work that was very important uh, for Darwin en route to the origin of species. Agassiz would provide him with specimens. And the more Darwin realized what he was working on and where he was headed, the clearer it became to him that Agassiz would be his main target. And very, very fortunately for him, Agassiz's colleague at Harvard, Asa Gray, a brilliant botanist, became Darwin's correspondent, became his associate, essentially, in promoting the theory. And Asa Gray became quite brilliant at provoking Agassiz into making public statements, into embarrassing himself publicly in service of Darwin's theory. Darwin would continue to write to Agassiz for information uh, that Agassiz then still tried to answer. Darwin sent him a complimentary copy of The Origin of Species, offering it, uh, as he said, to Agassiz in the best spirit of scientific inquiry, and uh, the heavily marked up copy is still here at Harvard, Agassiz's copy of Darwin's Origin of Species. He didn't tear all the pages out. He did not. So Louis Agassiz's uh, first wife walks out on him. He's insufferable. And he comes to the United States, he gets married, and not just to an ordinary woman, but to one of the first families in Boston, uh, Elizabeth Cabot. Carrie, I believe, was her name. How did that work out? It worked out extremely well for him. Uh, He married a woman who was very gifted. She was a talented writer, and she became his public voice, basically. She became the woman who wrote down his lectures, would publish them as articles. She became, later on, the founder of Radcliffe College, which some people see as a direct outgrowth of the kind of training she had received under Agassiz. She was in the field. She would always distance herself from a little bit from what was going on and would say, I'm just an amateur. But in order to write the things she did, she had to be much more than an amateur. So Louis Agassiz would not have maybe been such a big deal without this woman in his life? He was a big deal when he came. He would have had a hard time maintaining his big deal reputation without her. Uh, Here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we are at the uh, Museum of Natural History at Harvard, he's rather famous for his racism. Why was Louis Agassiz such an outspoken racist? Why did he care? It's a complex story. Uh, Race played no real part in his scientific work before he came to the United States. When he came to the United States in 1846, he realized quickly that having an opinion on race, being an expert on race, would further bolster his public importance. He believed in biological differences between races as if they were species. He believed that there were biological differences that made it impossible for blacks and whites to intermarry. And he would publicly talk about these biological issues. All of this sounds very off-putting. One thing that we need to remember is that most of his racial opinions were shared by people at the time. None of this was important for the rest of his scientific work. It is a puzzling, puzzling fact that he got so engaged in it. 
Do I wish he had not said any of this? Yes. But in part, the book got his impetus from the complexity of this man who had many, many affable, many, many positive sides and had other sides that are deeply troubling. And they're part of the same coin. Indeed, Louis Agassiz had many, many faults, selfish, plagiarizing, racist, braggart. Yet he was admired by many people in America. They looked up to him. Why, do you think? The sheer energy, the sheer passion he brought to his work was deeply admirable. There was a man who would show up in the, in the lecture halls, his pockets stuffed with specimens that he would pull out. And he would hold something up, he would speak with this absolutely attractive French accent, you know, talk about little fish or little beetles. He would pull these things out and show them as he was demonstrating them. He was a man who would take his students to the beach and would ask them to go bodily into the water. If you can't get the jellyfish out of the water, you need to go to where they are. He would encourage his students to touch things. This was fieldwork in the modern sense. This is what he brought to America. He changed the face of science education permanently. That's part of his legacy. So that's all part of Louis Agassiz as he was at the time. And it's part of the mesmerizing force that he exerted on the people around him. There's a famous story that he liked to tell that at one point, when his eyes had given out from too much looking, and looking was extremely important to him, he used his tongue to taste a fossil specimen, to actually lick it, because he wanted that sensory contact with the specimen in front of him. And that was very, very different from the kind of science people were used to. He believed that science had to be woven into the common life of society, by which he also meant that everybody should be knowledgeable about science. Everyone theoretically could become a scientist, given the proper instruction, which of course somebody like Louis Agassiz could provide. Christoph Imscher's book is called Louis Agassiz, the Creator of American Science. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We leave you this week deep in the rainforest. A chorus of brilliant colored birds greets the dawn near Iguazu Falls, close to the border of Brazil and Argentina. There are over a hundred bird species in the area, including toucans, bakmats, woodpeckers, flycatchers, antbirds, and mannequins. Dan Grossman and I recorded this dawn chorus when we visited the falls a few years ago. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. 
Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.